0: Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. This week is all about conflict, and, as the title suggests, it's going to be mostly conflict between kings. Theudebert II and his Austrasian court, Theuderic II and his Burgundian court, and Clothar II and his Neustrian court. We're going to take a look at the potential reasons for these conflicts, the interests of each side, and the outcomes, in episode 76... Three Kings at War Now, before we dive into the fighting, the brother Kings Theuderic and Theudibird have a couple loose ends to tie up. Conflict between these brothers, or more specifically between their courts, as they were both still very young, had probably already occurred. But there was first an existential threat to both of them, and that was Clothar II. They are only slightly older cousin. Was without his powerful mother now, but he still had large ambitions. In the year 600, a year after Brunhild's exile, the two brothers joined forces and fought a battle with Clothar and his Neustrians. Now the origins of this particular conflict are murky. Fredegar simply writes, quote, In that same year, kings Theodebert and Theuderic took to the field against King Clothar and brought him to battle on the banks of the river Orvan, near Dormel. No additional information there to explain anything. Still, we can make some educated guesses. We have a few clues to work off. First, it may seem from the formulation of that sentence that the two brothers took to the field against Clothar, that it was Theudebert and Theuderic that were the aggressors. The location of the battle, Dormel, might also support this theory, since it lies southeast of the newly recaptured city of Paris. On the other hand, there are some clues that perhaps the opposite might be true. That Clothar was in some way the aggressor. Theudebert and Theuderic were not exactly on the friendliest of terms, and while they would go on to campaign together after this, which we'll talk about next, it wouldn't be long before they were back at each other's throats. This might suggest that it was necessity that drove them into an alliance against their cousin. Perhaps Clothar felt they were still weak, and he should press his advantage before they grew fully into their kingships. The other piece of evidence supporting this formulation is the outcome of the battle at Dormel. Fridgar records that Clothar's army was massacred. This is interesting, given how last time when Brunhild sent men to stop the army of Clothar and Fredegund, they were soundly defeated by the Neustrians. As I said in the last episode, this probably suggests that then the kingdoms were not so united, and the army sent by Brunhild was not their best. This time, it seems that with the two young kings on the field, their armies together were far too powerful for Clothar. This suggests... Both kings took the threat of Clothar seriously this time and committed their best troops. Another hint that Clothar was making inroads that they had to prevent? Possibly. Either way, this victory for the United Eastern Kingdoms was decisive. The two brothers laid waste to the lands along the Seine, and Clothar was forced into a humiliating peace deal with his cousins. And by humiliating, I mean humiliating. Not only was Clothar forced to give up what he and his mother had seized only a few years before, including Paris, his kingdom was effectively reduced to a tiny sliver of land along the English Channel. There were only three major towns, Rouen, Beauvau and Amiens, and all of the best Neustrian land was divided between the two victorious brothers. Now for the obvious question. Why leave Clothar with any land at all? Well, there's probably a couple answers to that question. First, perhaps they simply weren't able to take more. Much of the land seized by the two brothers was that which had been reclaimed by Clothar only a few years before, so his hold on it probably wasn't that strong. The area he retained, however, was probably different. If you remember all the way back to the civil war between Chilperic and Sigabird, At the end, when Chilperic was facing defeat, he took refuge in Rouen. It seems that the ties of the family of Chilperic in the region were quite strong. To remove Clothar would probably have involved long, exhausting sieges in hostile territory, and the two brothers might have just felt that it wasn't worth the trouble. Second, a rather obvious point. Theudebert and Theuderic did not really trust one another. To campaign longer and further into Neustria would have been difficult, and the brothers might not have trusted each other to continue their alliance. Previous civil wars had involved various betrayals and traitorous behaviour, Guntram continually switching sides as an example. Even their father Childebert had allied with his family's enemy Chilperic against Guntram when it had suited him. As we'll see, such predictions will soon come true. So the campaign against Clothar went well. The next campaign was against the Gascons, in the southwest of Gaul. Their incursions into nominally Frankish territory had clearly become unacceptable, and Theudebert and Theuderic teamed up again to deal with this threat. Remember, the power of the Merovingians was concentrated in the north and northeast of Gaul closer to the Rhine and Clovis' original conquests. The southern part of Gaul had long been little more than a tax base, and this vacuum of power caused issues in the past. When Gundervold had launched his rebellion and attempted to carve himself out a kingdom, it was in the south that he had concentrated his efforts, where Merovingian power was at its weakest it seems that the area had been slowly slipping out of central control since the conflicts with the Visigoths, which had attracted attention in short bursts, but had died down. Possibly even before these wars, control was slipping. The southwest of Gaul is, again, about as far as you can get from Merovingian power without crossing the Pyrenees. For royal courts that were not really known for their administrative capacity in the first place, Governing such a faraway province, when you have much more pressing problems a lot closer to home, well, it's probably understandable why it got neglected. Theudebert and Theuderic's campaign, however, illustrates that the kings were still interested in the area. While it lay far from their bases of power, they still wanted that sweet, sweet tax revenue. The interesting thing here is the enemy they fought. Fredegar states clearly that it was the Gascon who were defeated, subjected to Frankish overlordship, and had a duke appointed to rule them. The problem with this is that there are other historical instances of conflicts with the Gascon, and they don't tend to go well for the Franks. The famous example is, of course, the Battle of Roncesvaux Pass. This occurred in 778 when Charlemagne and his army were retreating across the Pyrenees after a largely unsuccessful campaign in northern Spain. During this retreat, the rearguard of his army was ambushed by the Gascon, who managed to destroy the rearguard and loot the baggage train. This battle became famous for two reasons. First, it is a very rare example of a documented defeat of the great King Charlemagne. second. During the battle, one of the army's commanders, Roland, was killed. His death, and the last stand of the rearguard, was glorified in the 11th century epic poem The Song of Roland. Anyway, the point of this is to note that the Gascon were not so easily subdued. First, the terrain, the Pyrenees and their foothills, was incredibly hostile, and the locals were experts at fighting in it. As we've seen with the Bretons, the mix of rough terrain and determined locals was very difficult for Frankish armies to deal with. Second, the Gascon likely remained almost entirely pagan at this time in history, making any efforts at assimilation quite difficult. Third, well, it just seems deeply unlikely that a Frankish army at this point actually managed to campaign effectively against the Gascon, let alone completely subjugate them. As we've discussed before, Frankish armies at this point were not of the highest quality. If the Gascon defeated Charlemagne, without too much effort, honestly, I doubt very much that any army sent by Theudbert and Theuderic could have handled them in such a comprehensive manner. Now, with all this said, there is no reason to completely disregard Fredegar and claim that no such campaign happened, just because the outcome he describes seems unlikely to us. This leaves us with two likely options that I can see. First, the army was sent and campaigned in the area against Gascon incursions. They might have defeated a few raiding parties, set up a duke in the area, and simply called it a victory. This honestly seems like the most likely outcome, meaning that Fredegar had simply overstated the success of the expedition. Second, and probably more interesting, is the idea that they may not have actually been campaigning against the Gascon at all. Ethnic lines were extra blurry at this point, and to a writer from the northern and eastern kingdoms, Gascony was a long way away it is entirely possible that the expedition was not actually aimed against the Gascon in the mountains, but the local population of southwestern Gaul. Were these people Gascon? Well, it's hard to say, and let's not get into the thorny discussion of classifying pre-modern peoples with strict ethnic terms. That's a whole other thing. But, the second option is more about what the army was sent to do. Fredegar phrases this campaign to make it seem like the kings were subjugating a people previously free from Frankish rule. But we've discussed the difficulties the Frankish armies would have faced with this. The alternative to this is the idea that he phrases things this way to cover the fact that the kings were in fact reimposing control over an area that had slipped out of Frankish hegemony. This is entirely possible. We know that the area had always been loosely connected to the Frankish states. We know Gundervold's rebellion had peeled it away with little issue. We know that even later Carolingian kings had to campaign multiple times in Aquitaine to subdue the area and to enforce their control. It is possible the army sent by Theudebert and Theuderic was on just such a mission, and Fredegar rephrases it to downplay the concept of Aquitanian independence, or just to glorify the Frankish kings and their armies. Now, enough about these brothers cooperating. Let's see how their uneasy alliance broke down. In 604, Theoderic sent his mayor of the palace, Bertwald, to inspect all of his lands from the Loire to the Seine, and then on to the English Channel. This had been his part of the lands that had been taken from Clothar, and, it appears, surprise, surprise, that Clothar and his Neustria nobles very much wanted it back. At this point, we enter the part of Fredegar's chronicle that picks up and fills out a lot with detail. So, we have a much improved picture of this conflict and how it started. Bertwald seems to have been taking a leisurely tour of his king's new lands, and had stopped at a villa to do some hunting. The important detail here is that the villa seems to have been on the right-hand bank of the Seine, which might still have been Clothar's territory. If the terms of the agreement were vague, well, we'll have to forgive them. Good maps simply didn't exist yet. Anyway, Clothar caught wind of this. Whether he felt that he was defending his territory from an incursion, or whether he simply seized an opportunity, he sent his son Meravik and his mayor of the palace, Landry, to go capture Bertwald. Now, something seems to have gone wrong with this plan, as the force commanded by Merovic and Landry instead began pillaging the lands between the Loire and the Seine. The actions of bertwald are up for debate, but this one isn't. Even Fredegar notes that this pillaging was a direct breach of the agreements between the kings. The action also seems to have given Bertwald warning, as he managed to slip through their fingers and flee to Orleans. Whether this invasion of Theuderic's new territory was a calculated escalation under the orders of Clothar, whether it was an initiative of Merovech or Landry, or whether it was simply another case of Frankish armies lacking control in this period, we simply don't know. What we do know is that the participants realized that now another war was inevitable. Landry and his army besieged Orléans, where Bertwald was now under the protection of the bishop Austranus. Landry challenged Berthewald to come out and fight, but Bertowald, who only had 300 men with him, wisely refused. But the exchanges between the two mayors of the palace did not end there. Fredegar notes that Bertwald, yelling down at Landry from the walls of the city, said, quote, If you are prepared to await me and send your men some distance off, I will come to do single combat with you and God shall be the judge. Quote. When Landry refused this offer, Bertwald continued, quote, You dare not, but our masters will at once go to war for what you have done. When the fighting starts, let us both wear red and be well to the fore of our men. Then we shall see what the two of us are made of. Swear with me before God to keep this promise. End quote. From later context, it seems that Landry did in fact swear, knowing that battle between Theuderic and Clothar was now inevitable due to his actions. And so it was. When Theuderic heard of the events, he set out with his army and reached a ford across the river Luet, with Bertwald and his men joining him somewhere along the march. On the other side was the army led by Merivik and Landry. Theuderic's men tried to cross, but only about a third of them managed to do so before the Neustrians moved and caught them. Undeterred, Bertwald strode into the clash, pushing with his men to find Landry. But it seems that his Neustrian counterpart had gotten cold feet and was hiding at the back of his force. Bertwald, now overextended, was surrounded by Neustrians and was cut down. Now, Fredegard doesn't tell us exactly how, but the Burgundian force actually managed to win the day despite this rather disheartening start to the battle. Perhaps Bertwald's offensive managed to buy the rest of the army enough time to cross the ford. Whatever the case, the battle was a resounding victory for Theuderic. His mayor of the palace had died, but he captured Clothar's son Meravik, and forced Landry to flee the field, and butchered a large part of the Neustrian force. Fredegar notes that this was a large army too, and the context supports this claim, as Theuderic. Then seems to have moved on Paris which he entered quote, "in triumph." This clear invocation of Roman imagery is not a coincidence, and it had real consequences. Theudbert seems to have been nearby at this point. It seems likely that his brother Theuderic had called on him when he was informed that Clothar had broken their agreement and the Austrasian king had arrived with an army. But he did not move to support his brother. Instead, he seems to have sat by and simply let the battle happen. When Theuderic emerged victorious, Theudebert moved to find Clothar. But the two didn't fight. Instead, they made peace and went home with their armies intact. This begs the question, why did Theudebert do this? Fredegar is not a fan of Theuderic, thanks to Brunhild's influence on the young king. So he doesn't exactly paint this as a betrayal, but it is rather hard to see it as anything else. There are a few simple conclusions we can draw. First, as I've said at multiple points, the two were not exactly the best of friends. They seemed to have fought each other before, and though they had teamed up effectively to solve specific issues, they were clearly more rivals than friends. Second, the timing is rather obvious. This is actually a pretty classic situation. Two armies fight, a third approaches, but waits to see who comes out on top instead of intervening. But if Theudebert's intention was to remove Theuderica's arrival, why not attack his army while it was weakened or distracted? Well, There are always moral and religious reasons, brother fighting brother, etc. But the next conflict actually gives us some other clues. Theudebert clearly thought Theuderic had gained too much power from his victory over Clothar's forces, and the situation had broken the alliance between the two brothers. But it was actually Theuderic who made the first move the next year, raising an army and marching against his brother. At least, if you believe Fredegar it was, which is always a dicey choice. I think, most likely, both sides knew that after Theudabird's actions the year before, war was likely, and both began preparing for it. Now, it was time for a reckoning, an end to the conflict between the brothers as to who would inherit their father's legacy. This conflict had been simmering for ages, and now it was finally ready to boil over. At least, for the kings it was. For the men, eh, not so much. See, Fredegar tells us that as the two armies were encamped, Theuderic's men came and begged him to come to terms with his brother and avoid conflict. Of all of the men present... Only his new mayor of the palace spoke out in favour of battle, a man named Protadius, who we will talk about a lot in the next episode. Theuderic seems to have turned these men away, siding with Protadius. This enraged the soldiers, who blamed Protadius for this conflict that they did not want. When Theuderic was off in another part of the camp, the men surrounded his tent, in which Protadius sat, and even detained Theuderic so that he could not come back and interrupt them in this conspiracy. Now, they had both the king and the mayor at their mercy. What exactly their plan was is unclear. Often spontaneous actions like this are not well planned, and the troops don't seem to have actually entered the tent at this point, only surrounding it. Upon realising the situation, Theoderic sent one of his nobles, a man named Unkelin, to instruct his soldiers not to harm Protadius. The fact that he could do this, and clearly felt that he could order these rebellious soldiers, probably suggests that this initial phase was not actually violent. Theoderic seems to have felt that this was simply the soldiers' way of making clear their displeasure, and that an agreement could be worked out. And to be fair to him... That does seem to be the vibe of this story so far. But things took a turn with the arrival of Uncolin. He made his way to the tent, where the soldiers had trapped Protadius. Instead of delivering Theuderic's order that the man be spared, he instead yelled, quote, "The Lord Theuderic orders Protadius’s execution." End quote. The soldiers duly drew their swords and stormed in from all sides slashing the tent apart and killing Protadius. When Theuderic received this news, he seems to have quickly become worried that he had lost control of his army. He agreed to make peace with his brother, which he duly did. Then both armies went home without further blood being spilt. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, damn, that was a weird twist. Don't worry, the story of this incident is far from over. Now that we've talked about the kings and their wars, it's time to return to the real good stuff, the politics. There is more to say in the story of Bertwald, and I have much more to say about Protadius as well. Also, if you're thinking, wow, Nelson went a whole episode and only mentioned Brunhild a couple of times, what restraint? Well, don't worry about that either, because next episode is going to be all about her yet again. Personally... I can't wait. See you then.